Well, we're in the third chapter of Malachi. You can turn there, please. Let me just kind of um, remind you of what's going to happen next Sunday. We are going to be having our Bring Your One Sunday. I hope you'll do that. I do want you to know that we're not going to call attention to your one. We're not going to seek to embarrass anybody. All we're going to do is welcome the visitors and uh, welcome them here and share God's Word with them. So I hope you'll do that and um, I hope you'll have your one here. If possible, at least reach out to them and and seek to invite them uh, to be with us today. I want you to turn to Malachi chapter 3. And uh, I want us to read this portion of God's Word. So just read with me as I, as I read this portion of God's Word. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. We sang about that, didn't we? And he will sit, uh, he will be like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them as gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who Thrust aside the sojourner, and who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit 
of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention to them and and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, and the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. This is the word of God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for its truth, Lord. We just pray that as we seek to expound it, that you will break it so that we can hear and understand what you have for us today. Lord, I just pray that we will leave here different than we came. For we call all of these things and all these requests before you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Living in the light of Christ's return. That's what we're going to be talking about um, this morning. You know, the Bible clearly teaches in the Old Testament and the New Testament that Jesus Christ is coming again. In fact, the return of Jesus Christ, his second coming, is one of the carnal doctrines of the Christian faith. That simply means you cannot be a believer in Jesus Christ and deny that he's coming again any more than you can be a believer in Jesus Christ and deny that he did not come the first, that deny that he came the first time. You know, the ancient Apostles' Creed states this, and maybe I grew up in a, a church that repeated the Apostles' Creed every Sunday, and it's a beautiful creed, and It goes like this. He says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come, the second coming, his return, to judge the quick, that is, the living and the dead. The Lord Jesus, who came the first time as a suffering servant, is going to come a second time as a triumphant king. The teaching of our Lord's second coming is not intended to fill our heads with knowledge, but to change our hearts. We're called upon to be ready for His coming, to be ready for His coming. To live in the light of his return. In our passage today, the prophet Malachi tells us how we can do just that. How we can live in the light of his return. First, he says, we must look for his coming. We must look for his coming. Anticipate it. You know, there are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament of our Lord's first coming. And all of these prophecies were fulfilled to the very letter. Prophecies of his virgin birth, Isaiah seven fourteen, Prophecies of his birth in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2, and many, many others. 
Now, since all of the prophecies of our Lord's first coming came to pass, we can be absolutely confident and sure that all the prophecies of His second coming will also come to pass. Now, often the Old Testament prophets would prophesy about the first coming and then immediately, even in the same verse, would prophesy about the second coming. In other words, often they didn't see the gap in between. Uh, They saw his first coming, they saw his second coming, but they did not see that gap in between. Now, that's exactly what we see here in verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, that's the Lord Jesus, Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, look at the first part of that verse. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, that's the first coming. My messenger is a reference to John the Baptist, who did come before the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist was the forerunner. He was the forerunner. He was the one who cleared the way. For the coming of Jesus. He was the one who prepared the way of the Lord. Now clearly, Jesus Christ is in view here since John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus. So the first part of this verse is about the first coming of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist came preaching a message of repentance, baptizing too, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, preparing the way for Jesus Christ. That's a prophecy of his first coming. Now, right after that, here in the middle of the verse, Malachi predicts the second coming of Jesus Christ. Again, he doesn't see the gap in between. Look at verse one, the second part of verse 1. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, the Lord Jesus, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, You know, and I know that during Jesus' earthly ministry, at his first coming, he entered the temple many times, many times. On two occasions, at the beginning of his ministry and there at the end of his earthly ministry, he cleansed the temple. You know, he, he overturned the table of the money changers. You know that story very well. But this refers to his second coming. When he comes to his temple in Jerusalem to establish his messianic kingdom on this earth. Now, Malachi tells us what that second coming is going to mean to Israel, to Judah. What is it going to mean to them? Again, look at verses 2, 3, and 4. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? He's talking about Israel. For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, a laundria, a launderer. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi, those were the priests, and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offers, offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Now, now the problem of Malachi, they were not bringing offerings that were pleasing to God. But now they're going to, because they've been, 
They're being cleansed by the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. So Jesus is going to purify those who trust Him. He will purify the priesthood. He will right all that wrong. He will purify the sons of Levi as the refiner's fire purifies gold and silver. So he will burn up the impurities of their sin. And as a fuller soap, he will wash them clean. This will happen at our Lord's return to establish his millennial kingdom on this earth. But folks, I I want to apply this to us. What will the Lord's return mean to us? as Christians today. Well, you've heard me teach many times, I'm sure, that the Bible teaches that there are two phases to our Lord's return, separated by seven years of tribulation. The first phase phase is the rapture of the church. The second phase, which will take place seven years after that, is His return to this earth to set up His kingdom. So, as we apply this to our lives today, I want us to first of all see that at the rapture, Jesus will examine believers. He's going to purify us. He's going to purify us. Jesus is going to come for believers at the rapture and take them to heaven to be with him. He's going to raise the the bodies of, of dead believers gloriously, and he's going to rapture believers who are living. He's going to change us in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, the Bible says, and we're going to get a new body without dying. And he's going to take us to heaven. Then we will be examined by him. The Bible calls this the judgment seat of Christ. The Bible speaks of it in three different passages. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10, Paul writes, For we shall all, all believers, appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we need to be very careful and understand that this is not a judgment for sin because the moment we hear that word judgment, we think of punishment. No, this is not going to be that at all. Jesus was judged on the cross for our sins. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, He made Him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. So Jesus paid our sin debt on that cross. Jesus was judged for us. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment, no punishment to those who are in Christ Jesus. So this is not a judgment for sin. No, this is an examination. Our sins were judged at the cross. But our Christian life and service will be examined at the judgment seat of Christ. Again, Malachi chapter 3, verse 2 says, But who shall... Who can endure the day of His coming and who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire. A refiner's fire is to purify silver of His impurities. In verse 3, it says, He, the Lord, will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. Now here, the Lord is pictured as a silversmith. And what does the silversmith do? Well, The silversmith would take the silver and hold it over a burning hot fire. And the fire would actually melt the silver. And the dross would rise to the top. And then he would take a skimmer 
and he would skim off all of the dross and the impurity. And the only thing that would remain would be the pure silver. Now, I believe that's what Jesus is going to do at the judgment seat of Christ. At the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus is going to burn off all the dross in our lives, the wood, hay, and stubble, and the only thing that's going to remain is the gold, silver, and precious stones, the works that we have done for His honor and His glory. Now, I personally believe that Jesus is going to have a reward for each believer at the judgment seat of Christ, although some is going to be greater than others. And the reason I think that is because Revelation 22, verse 12 says, Behold, I am coming, and my reward is with me. Jesus said, I'm coming back, and I, I, my reward is with me to give to everyone, everyone, according to his work. So I believe, to a certain degree, that we'll all have some sort of reward to receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because when God saves us, there's fruit. There's got to be some fruit. Some reward is going to be greater than others, no doubt about it. But I believe he's going to have a reward for us. Now there's another lesson here that I don't want us to miss. Jesus is doing the work of a refiner right now in your life and my life. He's doing that right now. When the fires of trial and trouble and adversity come into our lives, Jesus, the divine refiner, uses them to burn off the dross and the impurities of our life. And what's the purpose of all of this? The purpose is is to make us holy. We've already sung about it. The purpose of this is to make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what trials are all about. You know, we think of trials as something bad. Well, listen to what um, Peter says about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing, because of the, uh, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That doesn't sound all bad to me, does it? Do you? And then in James chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4, James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, all kinds of trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That didn't sound too bad. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. That didn't sound too bad. Lacking in nothing. In other words, God designs the trials and the troubles that we go through in life. He designs that for a good purpose for His children. In order to refine us, in order to to burn off the dross and the sin of our lives, to to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. You know, so I asked you, are you going through the fire? (laughs) I guess many of you would raise your hand and say, Pastor, that's me. Are you going through hard times? Are you going through trials? James says, count it all joy. Count it all joy. James says it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. You know, it means that Jesus, the divine refiner, is burning off the dross in your life and my life 
And he's at work making you and me more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. You probably heard this statement. I, I really like it. The silversmith doesn't take the silver out of the fire till he sees his own reflection in that silver. Well, my friend, the truth is, Jesus is not going to take you and me out of that fire until he sees his own reflection in you and me. So, what is Jesus doing? He's refining us. Also, I want us to see at the second, at the return of Jesus Christ, he's going to judge sinners. I mean, we can't get away from that. It's all through this passage and others. In chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be swift, a Swiss witness against the sorcerers, against adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker for his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. You know, we might think all about these sins of, of yesterday. Hundreds of years ago, no, there's sins of the day. They're the sins of America. There's the sins of our community. They're the same sins all around us. And what God is saying, a day of reckoning is coming. You know, sometimes we ask, why doesn't God do anything about the sin all around us? You know, I hear that all the time. Why doesn't God do something about the wickedness in our world? Well, well the truth is, He will do something. In fact, He is already doing something. He is judging sin today. And He will judge sin in the future. At the rapture, Jesus is going to pour out his wrath on all Christ's rejectors during this tribulation period. We're going to be with the Lord in heaven, but the people on earth who have rejected Christ are going to undergo the judgment of God. And then at his return to this earth seven years later, he's going to bring his final judgment against sin. And yes, he's going to right every wrong. Why doesn't God do anything? He's doing something and he's going to do something. He's going to judge those who do not fear him. You know, to fear God is to trust him, to have a personal relationship with him. Look at verse 6. That's a great promise. For I, the Lord, do not change. God doesn't change. This is the immutability of God. That's what it means. God does not change. We change. Our society changes. Culture changes. The church changes. But God does not change. And I love what it says about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, in this crazy world in which we live, aren't you glad that we have a Lord and a Savior who does not change? A Savior we can depend on. A Savior we can count on. A Savior, regardless of what we go through, that we know He's going to be with us even until the end of the age. Oh, we have a Savior who keeps us His, pro keeps his promise. A Savior who will save us through His cross and resurrection. Who will keep us saved until the end. Who will provide for our every need. Who will answer our prayers. Who will never leave us nor forsake us. Who will come again. And yes, He is coming again. We can count on Him. In these last days, people mock and say, Where is the promise of His coming? 
Wow, it's, it's been 3,000 plus years and he hasn't come yet. Well, he's coming again. The same Jesus that came the first time is coming again, but it's going to be different. This coming is going to be like a thief in the night when no one expects it. He is coming to take his people home at the rapture and leave the rest of mankind to undergo his wrath. And people may laugh and mock all they want to, but I promise you this, my friend, God's going to get the last laugh. My friend, if you're here without Christ, you have much to fear. I want you to know that. You have much to fear. The Bible says in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you have Christ, you have nothing to fear. If you don't have Christ, if you're without Him, you have much to fear. Yes, Jesus is coming again. Are you looking for His coming? Are you ready for His coming? If you don't have Christ, you're not ready. No way in the world you're not ready. If you know Christ and you're living for Him, then you're ready. But there's a second way we can live in the light of Jesus' return. And that is to have a heart of repentance. Another way to look at it is return to the Lord. (laughs) Return to the Lord. That's what Malachi says in verse 7. Return to me and I will return to you. The word return means to repent. It means to turn back. Repentance refers to a changed life. You know, there's not a person in this church today that doesn't need to repent. I don't care who you are. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter. A lot of people think, well, repentance is just for getting saved. I've got to repent. I've got to turn from my sin to trust Christ. Yes, you must. But repentance is just as necessary for us as Christians as it was the day we were saved. There's not a person in here today that doesn't need to repent. We all need to be turning back to God. We, we all need to get back on His path. Well, see, the children of Israel, the, the leaders and the people had gotten off God's path. They were in rebellion against His word and they needed to turn back. And God says, return to me. Folks, I believe God is saying to you and to me today, return to me. Return to me. Notice Israel's arrogant response. How shall we return? They say, why do we need to return to you? I don't think we've ever turned away from you in the first place. You know, you can only do so much with stupid. They were acting stupidly. There is nothing more stupid than for a Christian to think, I'm okay. There's nothing wrong in my life. I don't need to repent. I don't need to to change anything in my life. That's the epitome of stupidity. And my friend, if that's your if that's what you're thinking today, I, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I, that's the epitome of stupidity. What do we need to do to repent today? Now Israel is saying, "What do we need to do?" God says, "Listen up. I'm going to tell you." I said, this is what you need to do. Number one, stop robbing me. Stop robbing me. Verse 8. Will a man rob God, yet you're robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions? God says, you're robbing me. 
How have we robbed you? God says, you aren't obeying me. You aren't giving your tithes and contributions. You know, they were the worst kind of robbers of all. You know, it's bad enough to rob man. But when you rob God, I mean, that's as bad as it can possibly get. The children of Israel were robbing God by withholding their tithes and offerings that the law commanded them to bring to God. And this was not an option. No, it was a requirement. And Israel's disobedience amounted to just what God says here, robbing God. Look at verses 9, first part of verse 10. You are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. See, the people were bring the full tithe, not just part of it, into the storehouse of the temple, so that the temple worship would be able to go on and continue. And then, and then God challenges Israel to put him to the test in verse 10, the second part of the verse, and thereby, thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Well, see, God promises his people Israel that he will reward their obedience with blessing, an abundant harvest to satisfy their every need. Now, this was God's word for Israel. Well, what is God's word for us today? You know, people ask, is tithing required for Christians today since we're no longer under the Mosaic law? Well, we're no longer under the Mosaic law. That's true. But it should be noted that tithing preceded the Mosaic law. Abraham, he gave tithes to Melchizedek the king of Salem, when God delivered him from the four kings of the Jordan Valley when they were in battle uh, in order to rescue his nephew Lot. But you know, when you examine the New Testament, and that's what we need to do, the New Testament emphasizes grace-giving. In other words, the New Testament goes much further than the tenth. It really does. The New Testament teaches us that everything we have, I mean everything, all that we have belongs to the Lord. Not just 10%, everything. And I think the New Testament teaches that tithing is certainly a good place to begin. But it's not necessary the right place to stop. You know, and I know that giving a tithe can be a real sacrifice for some. But for others, it's just meager, really. Had a wealthy friend who was a millionaire, and he told me, he said, Pastor, if I just gave a tenth, it'd be like chicken feed. I don't know how much he gave, but his giving was much more than that. So if you ask me today, Pastor, should I tithe? My answer to you is yes. <laughs> it is the place to begin. It's a starting place. But I encourage you to be a grace giver. You know, there are two primary passages on grace giving in the New Testament. The first place is 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And I don't have time to go through all of this. I'm going to just bring out some principles that you can think about. I just want to summarize these passages. 2 Corinthians 
chapters 8 and 9. The first principle is this. Giving is a manifestation of God's grace. We see that in verse 1. We say, God was so gracious in giving to us His Son. Therefore, we ought to give graciously to Him. The second principle is found in verse 2 of chapter 8. Giving can be done in the midst of tough times. You know, I think about the Macedonian Christians, and that's what he speaks about in verse 2. They gave in their extreme poverty. You know what that tells me? You can't be too poor to give to God. I think of the widow who gave her two cents to the Lord. That's proof of that. And then, in verse 4, giving is a privilege. I mean, it's a privilege to give to God. It's an honor to give to Him. In fact, it's an act of worship. Now, I'll tell you, you know what really disturbs me as a pastor? This really disturbs me when it's offering time, chit-chatting with your neighbor or with your wife. Or, that really bothers me because the, the worship, uh, the offering is a time of worship. It's a time of worship to God. It's a privilege to give. Another principle in verse 5, giving involves putting others before our stuff. In other words, you might have to do without some things in order to give your offering or your tithe to God. Also, in verse 8, giving is a proof of our love for God. I mean, God proved His love for us by giving us Jesus. And, well, we show our love for Him by giving to Him. You know, giving really gets to the heart. You can tell a lot about a person by examining their checkbook. Don't say you love Jesus if you refuse to give to His work here and around the world. And then in chapter 9, verse 7, another principle is giving should be voluntary from a cheerful heart. In other words, you shouldn't give because you have to, but because you get to. You know, God loves a cheerful giver, the Bible says. And and when we cheerfully take that check or that cash out of our pocket and And put it in the offering plate. You know, God is pleased. God is pleased. That makes Jesus smile. And it should make us smile as well. And then in chapter 9, verse 12, giving is one way we can say thank you to God. You know, there's few ways that we can really say thank you, Jesus, for all you've done to me. One of those ways is to give to his work so that his gospel can be proclaimed from here in this community and around the world. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, we have another great passage on grace giving. It says, On the first day of the week, each one of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collection when I come. Now, um, this comes straight from the mouth of the Apostle Paul. And the context here is Paul is encouraging these Gentile churches to reach out and to help the suffering church of Jerusalem that was going through extreme persecution and suffering. And um, in this one simple verse, Paul gives us the when, the who, and the how much of giving from the New Testament perspective. When are we to give? On the first day of the week. What's that? That's Sunday. That's when we come together and meet, and the offering is passed. Who is to give? Let each one of you. In other words, it's for all of us. Again, you can't be too poor to give. You can give something. And then how much? As he may prosper. 
Well, see, the New Testament seems to teach proportionate giving. In other words, we should give in proportion to how God has blessed us financially. Has God blessed you? The how much for you might be a tithe. That's certainly the starting place. But the how much for you might be much more than a tithe. Good place to begin, but not necessarily a good place to end. If every Christian, if every Christian would at least tithe their income, there would never be a financial need in this church or any church. And I honestly believe the reason a lot of churches are struggling financially and they can't meet the budget is because God's people aren't giving generously to the Lord. In fact, some are not giving at all. It is unconceivable to me that a believer under grace would give less to the Lord and His work than a Jew under the law. And again, we see the great promise here. The great promise in in verse 10 that God is going to bless, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the task, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Have you ever heard Christians say, well, I just can't afford to give? The way I understand this passage and other passages on giving, that God says you can't afford not to. Because if you obey me, I'm going to open the windows of heaven and shower my blessing upon you. I've heard people say, in fact, I've heard some of you say that before they started tithing and giving generously to the Lord, they couldn't make ends meet. They couldn't couldn't live between paychecks. But once they started tithing, they had more than they ever could dream of. Okay. How can we return to the Lord? Stop robbing Him. Secondly, Stop complaining against God. (laughs) Boy, uh, the children of Israel, man, they were complainers, but we shouldn't judge them because we are too. In verses 13 and 14, God says, Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, What have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve God. What profit is it when we have kept his ordinance, and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord. People were saying, well, it really doesn't pay to serve God. Just a waste of time. What profit is it? And I've heard people say, not in this church, but other places, um, I'm just not getting anything out of my church. And my answer to them is simply this. Is that what the church is all about? Getting? I thought the church is about giving. (laughs) I thought it was about giving, giving to the Lord and giving to others. It was President Kennedy in his inaugural address said, Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be a fresh air to be able to hear that again from our politicians? But substitute the word church for the word country. And I think we get to what God wants us to know. Ask not what your church can do for you, but what you can do for your church. 
See, my friend, it's easy to gripe and complain and, yes, and even bellyache when we're sitting on the pew and doing nothing. We lived in a um, gated community with the HOA and uh, talked to Cindy a lot about that. You know, they were, there were many looked like they just didn't have anything to do but to snoop on you and, and see what violations they could write up on you. I'm afraid that's carried, on to a, carried over in a lot of churches. Seems to me that some Christians, they just have too much time on their hands. And if they would only get off the pew and get busy serving Jesus, they won't have a lot of time to complain about anything. I'm not getting anything out of my church. There's two things wrong with that statement. First, it's not my church. It's not my church. This isn't my church. This isn't the pastor's church. This isn't the deacon's church. This isn't your church. This is God's church. And the second thing, the church isn't about me. <laughs> it's not about my preferences. It's not, catering to, it's not about catering to my needs. I like what Warren Wiersbe, he's one of my favorite commentators. And this is what he says in his commentary on, on Malachi. He says, I hear this complaint from some believers about their churches. We're not getting anything out of it. But a church is like a bank or a home. You don't get anything out of it unless you put something into it. I like that. And then J. Vernon McGee, another great guy, great pastor of the past, he says, there are a great many people who say that the church they attend is cold. Are you sure that the church is cold or is it simply maybe you're cold? It might be well to check up because the problem in Malachi was with the people. Not with God at all. What's the purpose of the church? The purpose of the church is to worship God and make disciples. It's not about me. not about you. It's not about what I want. It's not about what I think's right. It's not about what I like. It's not about my preferences. It's about Jesus. It's about doing His will. It's about following Him. Doing what He's called us to do. In verse 16, we read these words. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. I like that now. You know, God's always had a faithful remnant. And, and He did in Israel. And He says, And those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before Him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on His name. Most in Israel were not walking with the Lord, but there was a faithful remnant who were. Again, God has always had His faithful people. And you know what they were doing? They were talking to one another. I love that. In other words, they were in fellowship with one another. They were encouraging one another. They were um, listening to one another. They were praying together and all of this. You know, that reminds me of a small group. That's exactly what was going on. There was a small group there in Israel among the people of God, and they were in fellowship together. They were meeting together. They were encouraging one another to be faithful to the Lord. You know, I hope you're in a small group. We have Sunday school. That's a small group. We meet here at 930. That's a small group. 
We also have small groups on Wednesday night. We have one here at the church. We have others in in the different neighborhoods around about. We have a small group on Thursday at Panera Bread. You know, that's what a small group is all about. Learning from one another, sharing with one another, encouraging one another. That's what was happening here. And it says that the Lord kept track of everything they were saying and doing. In fact, he wrote it all down in a book. It's called a book of remembrance. Wow. You mean God knows everything I'm doing? Yes, he does. He knows everything? Yes. He knows when I'm here? Yes. He knows when I'm not here? Yes. He knows when we're serving him? Yes. He knows when we're not serving him? Yes. It's all in his book. It's all in his book. How can we be thankful to God in this unfaithful world of ours? Oh, we need to be looking for His return and being ready for His return. And we need to have a heart of repentance. A heart of repentance. Closing, let's look at verses 8, 17. It says, They, are my, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession. Isn't that? Boy, I love that. When I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. You know, God calls his people Israel here, that faithful remnant that was faithful and obedient. He calls them his, his, his treasured possession. And folks, that's who we are as believers in Jesus Christ. We are God's treasured possession. That's what he thinks of you and me. We're his treasured possession. You are precious in his sight. He purchased you with the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. No matter what others think of you, no matter what your family thinks of you, you are a treasure of great worth to God. Never forget that. And then he closes in verse 18 by distinguishing between those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous, the saved from the, the wicked. He says in verse 18, Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. <laughs> the righteous, they serve the Lord. Another way of putting it, they're givers, you know. And we, we're never more like Jesus than when we give because he was a giver. And then the wicked, the unsaved, well, they don't serve Jesus. In fact, they're consumed about serving themselves, satisfying their own needs, living for themselves. The question I want to leave with you this morning is this. Are you living your life in light of Christ's return? What do you need to do today? To prepare for his return. He could come back at any moment. What do you need to repent of today? To be ready for his return. Let's pray together. We thank you Heavenly Father for your word this morning. We thank you for its truth. And we pray Heavenly Father Lord that you would just do a work in our hearts Lord and Show us where we need to return, where we need to repent. And Lord, I pray that we will be obedient to you.
For we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Let's stand for the benediction.